Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Ponte Vista, Colorado. All right, so what we want to do tonight is, as I said, kind of move away from the creation part of Genesis more into what happens beginning in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man, and we'll kind of work up to the flood of Noah and talk about the world that was is uh, what we're going to call this. I'm going to go ahead and get this pen out now. This is the most aggravating thing. All right, I got it. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. Come on in here, gay. That peach cobbler was... Only got one bite, but it was wonderful. Well, I hope somebody's going to put some aside back there. I've got to try. All right, well, let's go to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll begin reading verse 1. And kind of like what we've done in the past, we'll just kind of stop and break it down and talk about some of these things that are in these particular verses. All right, verse 1 says, Now the serpent, and let's just go ahead to Hebrew class. Okay, y'all saw me take that pen out, right? Okay, I couldn't find it for a second. Um, Well, let me finish reading the verse, and then we'll go to the Hebrew class. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, "You You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her. And he ate. So we'll pause there. And the first thing we're going to get into is, and and by the way, some of the things that we will discuss tonight, we have been probably in some form or fashion discussed before. But repetition is not a bad thing, honestly. All right, but here is the word that is translated the serpent. Let me see if I can do something here because that's just a little too big. There we go. So this is the nun chet shin, and the Hebrew word is pronounced nachash, and that is what we call the serpent. Nachash. And nachash, if you were to look that up and do a word study, what you'll discover is Even though it's the word that is translated many times as serpent, it's also the word that is translated bronze or brass. And so actually the entomology of the word is this. It means shining. It's something that shines. And so we could say that the serpent was the shining one. Now, personally, and I I won't be dogmatic about this because I do believe the Bible should be taken very literally, but I'm... I'm kind of wondering whether or not the serpent that was in the garden um, might have might be a little different than what we would imagine a snake to be, 
because the idea is that this is the shining one. And the, and the reason that I bring that out is because how does the adversary appear? How does he, what does he do? I mean, how does he come when he is going to seduce and steal and kill and destroy? He comes as an angel of light, right? So he comes posing as something he really isn't, but he does that. He projects himself as being um, a shining one, something that is uh, affiliated with the light. I would even use this term. He would he would project himself as being an enlightened one. And I say that because, you know, there are a lot of people in this day and age and throughout history that look down their noses at people like you and me because we, you know, we believe in what this book says. And they are the enlightened ones. They're the ones who's opened their minds to, you know, reality and science, and they reject these myths and all these kinds of things. So that's... I don't think it's wrong to look at the serpent as being something along those lines, too. And this is who the woman ends up in the conversation with. So let me go back to the text. And Jonathan, were you telling me that we don't have audio on the live stream, or is it just not recording the audio? I'm not sure what the message was. Okay, we're good now? Okay, all right. All right, so it says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. So here's my question. If it was a snake, why doesn't it say that he was the most cunning of all the creeping things? Or all of the things that slither and, and glide and those kinds of things. So it says that this Nachash was... the the more subtle of all the beasts of the field. And so I think it's very important for us to see that in the very beginning, the adversary is introduced to us as a beast. Why would that be important? Because what's going to happen in the end? This beast is going to arise, okay? And in Revelation, when it talks about this beast arising out of the sea and it has the seven heads and the, uh, the seven horns with the ten crowns, it also... In Revelation chapter 12, I believe it is, it also says that the Satan, the adversary, is that serpent of old. So he's a dragon, he's a beast, he's a serpent, he's all of these things. But in the beginning, he's introduced as this shining one, this, this that attracts and seduces because it's all about the eye. Let me let me go off on a little side trail here. I believe it's uh, well. Let me find it so I do not misquote it. In Deuteronomy chapter four. Bear with me just a moment here. Okay, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is telling the children of Israel, beginning in verse 15, he says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. 
lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Here's why I read this. Because we understand that in antiquity, people would look at the created thing and they would begin to worship that, whether it was birds or beasts or what have you. And Paul talks a lot about this in Romans. But here, what we read was they would look to the heavens and they would see these sparkly things. They would see these shining things. They would see the things that give off light. And rather than worshiping the one who created them, they would begin to worship these things. My point Mankind was created with an attraction to light, to things that shine, the things that illuminate. There is this inherent attraction to things that are light. So my bigger point would be this. That's perhaps why the adversary comes posing as an angel of light, because he knows that mankind is drawn toward that. The difference here is he's a false light. He's not the, the real thing. He's hiding what he really is beneath that persona of this minister of light or this messenger of light, which is why you and I, according to the Messiah, we are the light of the world. We're not, we're not supposed to hide that light. We're not to put it under the bed or the bushel, but we're a city set upon a hill which cannot, cannot be hidden. Because when we're not fulfilling that duty to be light, guess what? The adversary steps into that vacuum and he seduces people with those things that are false and that appear to be light. All right, so let's go back over to Genesis now. So the serpent and the Nachash was more cunning than any beast of the field. So let me show you. I won't, I'm going to go back to the board again, Jonathan. I want to show you the word in Hebrew that is translated, cunning. And we'll put the nikud up there. So this is the word that is translated subtle, cunning, or shrewd. And it's pronounced arum. Arum. And here is why I think it's important to point this out to you. Because as we continue to read, the woman is having this conversation with the serpent, or the serpent is having this conversation with the woman. Eventually, she's going to look at this tree. She's going to decide that it's good for food, pleasant to the sight. It's a tree desirable to make one wise. She takes and eats the fruit. She turns to her husband who is with her. He eats the fruit. Their eyes were open. And then when their eyes were opened, they realized that they were naked. And here is the word that is... Translated, naked. Let me get rid of the nikud first. It's just the plural form of the word that means subtle, crafty, or clever. In other words, the word for naked, when they realized that they were naked, they were smooth. It's tied to the idea of how the, the Bible describes the serpent as being, that he's subtle, that he's crafty, he's clever. So what would the point there be? That when mankind took, took and ate of that fruit that they were not supposed to eat, 
ingested the fruit and at least figuratively, if not literally, ingested that seed of that fruit, which we'll get to what that represents in just a moment, then when their eyes were opened, they realized something. Not only were they bare-skinned, not only were they naked, but then from that point forward, what does mankind going to behave like? He's going to be crafty and clever and subtle and seductive and twist words. In other words, start acting like the adversary and start replicating those traits. Would that be a fair assessment of mankind through the ages? Okay. And it happens after they take and they eat the fruit from this forbidden tree. So let's talk about that for a moment. She said in verse 2 that we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's ask this question. Were their, were their eyes opened, and did they recognize the difference between good and evil? They did. Okay, so that was true. Okay, where's the lie? You're not going to die. All right, so from the beginning, the one who is called the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning, he always takes something that is true, and he blends it with something that is not. And that's how he's so good at what he does. Keep in mind, he's always posing as something that appears to be good, appears to be light. And then if he can get you engaged in a conversation where you're willing to listen to the words coming out of his mouth, then he's going to take and say something that sounds right, sounds plausible. And while you're looking at that and focused on that, he also slips into things that aren't true. That's how he operates. Um, I always liken it to the illusionist. You know, the illusionist wants you looking at this hand because that's where the flashy handkerchiefs are. That's where all the, the, the bouquet of flowers and all those kinds of things. He wants you looking at that over there. Why? Because he doesn't want you looking at this hand. He doesn't want you to see what he's up to. He wants you distracted by something that appears to be good. May I go off on a little trail here? I think I will. Thank you. All right. <laughs> This is, you know, it may sound unrelated to you, but to me it's connected. When I was growing up in church, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and one of the things that both intrigued me and freaked me out when I was growing up in church was when the pastor or somebody or an evangelist or somebody would talk about prophecy, talking about the coming of the Lord and the end of the age and who the Antichrist was going to be and all those kinds of things. And I grew up in the era when Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. If you, if you, anybody remembers that and he was going to be the Antichrist. Um, so that's the era I grew up in. And like I said, those kinds of discussions always intrigued me, but they always kind of freaked me out at the same time. But I would, I'd be right in there, you know, listening to all this stuff. All right. So in those days, I remember, that's probably when I first heard that the beast system at the end of days was going to be revive Roman Empire. It was going to be something out of the European common market. I don't know if you heard that scenario before. Uh, and all those different things that people talked about. You know, well, you know, the scenario was that 
uh, as things got more wicked, sooner, you know, at some point when nobody knew that uh, a lot of people were going to just disappear overnight, nobody was going to know what happened to them. We watched all the 1973 films about the thief in the night, you know, to kind of get us all freaked out about all that kind of stuff. See a lot of people nodding their heads, all right? And then, of course, this European common market and the revived Roman Empire was going to come and this man of sin that everybody was going to love, think he was just the greatest thing in the world, world peace, man of peace, all these different kinds of things. And and he was going to come to power and everybody's going to love him and he was going to unite the world in a government and unite everybody in a one world religion. And then he was going to get shot in the head. And then after three days, he was going to be resurrected and then all heck was going to break loose. You've heard that scenario, right? Okay, I don't want to get anybody left behind on this one, right? So, all right. So, anyway, a lot. Yes, yeah, the peach cobbler. A lot of that. Most of that's not even in scripture. Most of that's not even in the scripture. All right. But my point was this: for decades, people look for a revived Roman Empire to arise and a Jew from the tribe of Dan to come at the head of that and be the Antichrist. By the way, a Jew from the tribe of Dan is impossible. (laughs) Think about it. (laughs) Meditate on it. Okay? But in the beginning, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the story just a little bit, but in the beginning... And, the, and it's, it's important to see what's going on in the beginning because according to Isaiah, the Creator teaches us the end by teaching us what? Beginning. The beginning. Now, where in the beginning does he tell us about Rome? Compare that to how, what does he tell us about Babylon? Okay, do you understand my point? In the beginning, can we find Babylon? Okay. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, it is Babylon, the mysteries about Babylon, who is the mother of all abominations and all these different things that are considered wicked and corrupt in the world. So Babylon is what gave birth to those things. So my point is this. While people have been looking at a revived Roman Empire and the European common market and all these different things, the flashy stuff over here, what has the adversary been doing? He's been raising up that spirit of Babylon right under our nose. And what is that? What is the spirit of Babylon? What is that all about? Taking something that's true and mingling it with something that's false. Pairing those two things together, posing as something that is good and true and pure and virtuous and all those things, and yet hiding the fact that it's poison and it'll kill you. Are you, are you following me here? So these are these, these ideas, these concepts we see in the very beginning, how they're played out. And again, I'm jumping, kind of getting way ahead of myself here, but I'm just going to go with the flow. Let's go real quick to Revelation chapter 17. I'm going to go... I'm going to start with verse 1. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk 
with the wine of her fornication. So this harlot commits fornication with the kings of the earth, and then the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of that fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the Italian peninsula. No, that's not what it says. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. By the way, that word could also be translated as desert. What I'm trying to do is point out that Rome is not in the desert. Rome is not in the wilderness. Okay? So he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman. Now she's called a woman. A while ago she was a harlot, now she's a woman. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written. Mystery. By the way, in your Bible, after the word mystery, do you see any punctuation? A comma. Now, I won't pretend to know why they decided to put that comma there, but in a lot of uh, very old texts, there's always a punctuation there, almost always, anyhow. When we see a comma, what does that tell us to do? Pause. So, let me read it this way. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Rather than reading it, Mystery Babylon the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Okay? Do you, you see what I'm saying here? Let's just kind of go with this for a moment. What if it's not about you and I are supposed to figure out who Mystery Babylon is? But what if the mystery is this? What Babylon is and how it rises again at the end of the age? And what is Babylon? the mother of harlots. Let's pause right there. In, in Scripture, Israel is considered, where the Creator is concerned, Israel is not only his son, even my firstborn, but Israel is considered to be my, my betrothed. I am betrothed to her. You are betrothed to me. And in Hosea chapter 2, he talks about luring her into the wilderness, and I will be betrothed to her there. So his people are considered to be his, his bride, Right? Now, a bride or wife is only to receive the seed of her husband. But in this particular case, this woman, by the way, the term in Greek that's translated woman as in verse 3, the Greek term gune is actually the Greek term that is most often rendered wife. So it is implied that this woman who's riding this beast is someone's wife, but what has she done? She has gone and played the harlot. She has gone and mingled her husband's seed with the seed of her other lovers, these kings of the earth. Everybody still with me here? Okay, so I have to pause there. We talked about this at some point in times past, but to refresh your memory, in 1 John chapter 3, you distinguish the children of God from the children of the adversary because his seed is in his children. Now, what is his seed? The word, his word. So when his word is in his children, they bear the fruit of that. And you know them by their fruit, right? Because the fruit has to reflect the seed. If it's a tree producing oranges, you can't tell me it's an apple tree. 
right? So the fruit has to reflect the seed. Once you know what the fruit is, you know what the seed is. So the, his people, his children have his seed, his word in them, and then we bear the fruit of that, all right? Likewise, the adversary, you know who his children are because they bear the fruit of his seed. Now, what would his seed be? His word, which are things that are true mingled with things that are false. Almost always, a convincing lie is going to have a, just a little bit of truth, isn't it? That's the deception. The adversary is not going to come to most of us and try to seduce us with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, things that are blatantly and obviously wicked. Why? Because he knows we're not going to fall for that. So how is he going to try to seduce us away from the truth? By saying things that sound true, that ring true, but he's always going to try to hide the poison that's in those words. So what I'm suggesting to you is, number one, this woman in Revelation chapter 17 is not the beast. The beast is not the woman. But they work in cooperation with one another for a time being until the beast is through with the woman. And she's used up her usefulness. But she's not the beast. The beast is not the woman. She is, it's a very, at the very least, hinted at this woman is someone's wife who has gone out and played the harlot. So when Israel went and played the harlot, and there's many scriptures that talk about the Creator addressing them, you played the harlot, you've gone out here with the Belen, your other lovers. And by the way, Baal, it's Lord, Master, but in its raw form means husband. They've gone out and they've consorted with these other people like they would if they were a husband, and they have mingled his seed, his word, with their philosophies, their ideologies, their doctrines, their ideas. And so I'm suggesting that this woman is emblematic of just that. She's someone who's taken something that was supposed to be exclusive and not mixed with other things, and what has she done? She's done that very thing. She's gone out and she's mixed and mingled what's true with what is false, what's pure with what's, what's corrupt. And so, uh, and so much so, it talks about how the entire world is now drunk with the wine of her fornication. So she's got this epithet written on her forehead, and I think that's important because written on her forehead, at least as far as I'm concerned, implies it has to do with the mind, the way of thinking. And so here's where I'm, what I'm getting to or trying to get to. In the beginning, we don't see Rome. We see Babylon. <clears throat> at the end, we see, I don't think, Rome. We see Babylon. And anything that Rome did, or Greece did, or Syria, or any of those empires, according to what we read here in Revelation chapter 17, it was birthed by Babylon. That's who gave birth to it. It just expressed itself in all these other empires and all these other nations. So she's got this written on her forehead, where the mind is, how you think the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, because how we think determines what? What we do. The woman saw the tree, that it was pleasant to the eye, 
and it was a tree desirable to make one wise. So she started thinking about this, and as she began to think this way, what did she end up doing? Reaching out and taking the fruit, eating it, and then turning to her husband who was, who was with her. All right? So now, to be very, very, very clear here, lest I get in trouble with the ladies, the Scripture tells us that by one man sin entered into the world. We understand the woman was deceived. In fact, let me, let me read something here real quick that Paul said. He's writing a letter to the, the congregation in Corinth, and this is in 2 Corinthians 11, and it's in verse 3. And he's, he's talking about how much he loves them and how he cares for them, but he also says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is the Messiah. So he's, he's saying, what I'm worried about here is, if I can paraphrase it, how you're going to be thinking. What's your mindset going to be? You don't need to get so focused on some of these other things that you lose sight of the simplicity that is in Messiah. Because, and I know I'm all over the place, I'm going to try to bring it together here in just a moment. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, the adversary did not seduce the woman with things that were obviously and blatantly wicked. He seduced her with this question. Didn't God say something? What did God say? What did God mean when he said that, more or less? God doesn't want you to eat the fruit of this tree because, see, he knows if you eat of this, you're going to know everything he knows. And who doesn't want to know everything that God knows? And so what was the seduction? You can know as much as God knows. Knowledge. That was the seduction. And that's what caused her to look at that. So Paul is saying, look, don't be deceived. The woman was deceived by the craftiness of the adversary. Don't be deceived like that. And so you lose sight of the simplicity that is in the Messiah. If I, and I, again, I realize I'm going all over the place here. Are y'all with me? Okay. As we have been introduced to understanding more of this word and our lost heritage, I like, you know, I'll put it that way. I know for a fact, I've seen it, and I'm sure you have, that there have been those that we love, that we care about, who have been seduced by, by a pursuit for knowledge and always about learning, 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 learning. And along the way, unfortunately, some of those people, maybe you've witnessed it, I certainly have, have lost sight of the reason we're supposed to be doing this in the first place, and that is keeping our focus on the Messiah. Am I the only one who observed that? All right? So that's what Paul was addressing. That's why she was seduced, because he was crafty and clever and tried to seduce her into a way of thinking that was contrary to what the Creator had said, I want you to do this, don't do that, live this way. So again, back to Revelation 17, it's interesting that this is written on her forehead, where the mind is. Because again, how we think is going to determine what we do. If my brain says, let's go fishing, my body's not going to take me bowling. It doesn't work that way. We think on, we ponder, 
And eventually, if we stay on those thoughts long enough, our legs take us to that place, our hands reach out and grab it, and we do those things that we have been thinking about. So, all right, if you're still with me, I mean, what I'm trying to do is connect what's going on here in Revelation 17 to what we see introduced in Genesis chapter 3. So in Revelation 17, the woman is not the beast. However, she works in cooperation with the beast. She's riding the beast, and the beast is allowing that to happen. The woman in Genesis 3, Hava, Eve, she was deceived. But by being deceived, what did she do? She opened a pathway for the adversary to get to who? Her husband. So unwittingly, I don't think it was consciously, but unwittingly, what did she do? She cooperated with the adversary because what was his objective in the first place? To get to the man, right? Why? Because he was the one that was given the responsibility to be over, to have dominion over these things. Now, not that she was subservient to him. Don't misunderstand me, ladies. But what would have happened? What would have happened if she had eaten the fruit and he had not? You ever thought about that? (laughs) And the answer to the question is, I don't know. But the point is, is that they did not realize they were naked until he ate the fruit. So obviously, to get to Adam was the main objective. And when we understand that Adam is a precursor of the last Adam, who is the Messiah, because he had to come and resolve all these problems and reconcile us back to the Father, the woman unwittingly worked in cooperation with the adversary. She was deceived. Now, Adam, he knew, he knew what he was doing, apparently. He was not deceived. There's nothing in the scripture that tells us he was deceived. He just, she took, she, this woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, I ate it. Yeah. All right. Um, is it all right if we go this way? Absolutely. Okay, all three of you, I'll go with that. All right, okay. So uh, back in Revelation 17, this woman who apparently or maybe someone's wife has gone out and she has mixed seed. She has, to relate it back to Genesis 3, she has turned away from the tree of life, and now she's looking at this other tree that's mixed and mingled, and she's taking and she's eating to that. And her taking and eating of it has now created an environment whereby the inhabitants of the world are drunk with the wine of what she's doing. Would it be fair to say that the world today, by and large, is intoxicated with the idea of coexistence, tolerance, and and all this inclusion and all these other terms that are thrown around, to say that if someone like you or me says, well, this the Bible says that this is wrong, the Bible says that this is right, well, you're just intolerant. You're this, you're that. The world is intoxicated with that kind of thinking, that, that lifestyle. So what I'm getting at here is, I believe that what the woman is emblematic of is already happening in our world today. And the beast, the adversary, is going to use that to exploit what it is he wants to try to do in the end of days. Um, There's a fork in the road here 
in my thinking, and I can go this way or I can go that way, and I'm trying to decide which way to go. Um, all right, I want to stay in Revelation 17 for just a moment here. In verse 6, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Yeshua. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. That's a mouthful. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short, a short time. And the beast that was and is not is in himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Now, who's confused? <laughs> okay. All right. So let's go back. The beast that you're looking at, John, used to be. But right now it isn't. But it is going to ascend out of the bottomless pit. So the beast you're seeing, John, right now, it's not in the earth. It used to be in the earth, but it's not right now, but it's coming back. All right, that makes sense? All right, let's continue. And those who dwell on the earth are going to be marveling those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Can I pause and interject this? Who is going to be marveling? Who's going to be puzzled? Who's going to be perplexed? Those whose names are not written in the book of life. So what about those whose names are written in the book of life? Are they going to be caught by off guard? Are we going to be puzzled and, you know, and, and perplexed by what's going on? Actually, Paul says that we are children of the light, and we're, that day is not going to overtake us unawares, right? Because we are children of the light. We're not going to be surprised. Well, that is if we know what this says. All right, so he goes on. And when the, here's what they're going to marvel about. When they see the, the beast that used to be, and right now John is not, and yet it is. Still confused. Here's the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads on this beast are seven mountains on which the woman sits because there's a mystery about the woman and a mystery about the beast because the two are not the same. But these seven heads are also seven kings, seven, not earthly kings, seven principalities. Five of them, John, have already fallen. One is right now, who is in power in John's day? Who? Rome. Okay? So if the beast is epitomized by a kingdom that was not in John's day, because the beast that you see was, it isn't right now, John, but it will be. But those seven heads on that beast are representing seven kings or principalities. Five of them have already gone away. One is right now, John, and who is there in John's day? Rome. Guess what? 
if Rome was there in his day, but the beast wasn't in his day, Rome is not the focal point. The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he will continue a short time. And the beast that was, is not, is himself also the eighth. He's of the seven, and he's going to perdition. Here's what it's saying. He saw this beast, and it has these seven heads. It represents these seven principalities. And the angel is saying that this beast right here, this beast system, it has existed in the world before. It's not really in control, so to speak, right now, and yet its presence is felt. And those seven heads represent seven principalities, seven kingdoms that have been in the earth or are going to be in the earth. Five of them, John, have already come and gone. And as it relates to Israel, where would we start? Let's maybe Egypt. That would make sense, right? Okay. Mm, Syria. Babylon. The Medes and Persians. And the Greeks. That would be five. And all five of those very much had an effect and impact on Israel. Would you agree? Okay. Now, after the Greeks came, the Romans. That would be the one that is. And from John's point of view, another one is going to come, a seventh one. He's only going to be around for a little while. But then after him is going to come an eighth one, but the eighth one is actually the beast that was and is not and yet is going to arise again. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you, but if you continue to read in Revelation chapter 17 and you go on to read in Revelation chapter 18, well, in fact, let's just read this verse in Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons. In other words, which one was in the beginning and which one is going to arise in the end? Babylon. So while everybody's looking at the revived Roman Empire and all the flashy stuff over there, what might the adversary be doing over here? And what is Babylon? Is it a place or is it a way of thinking? And is it a way of thinking that reaches beyond any geographical location and can actually go into every nation on the face of the earth and affect every community on the face of the earth and get into the minds of people that they mix what is true with what's a lie and they take things and embrace things that have the appearance of being good and yet they're laced with poison. All of that is to say that what the adversary did to try to seduce the woman and destroy the man in the beginning is essentially the same tactic that he is using today. He comes posing as a minister of light. He takes those things that sound plausible, sound virtuous, sound nice. I mean, because who doesn't want to be tolerant? Who doesn't want to just be able to sit down across the table and, and have a civil conversation with someone who vehemently disagrees with you and tolerate one another? Well, if... If all they meant was you and I being able to be civil in our disagreements, that would be one thing. But I hope you've noticed that a lot of the people out there that want you and I to be tolerant of them are not very tolerant of you and what you think. Would you agree with that? And never will be. Because it's never been about 
Oh, just eat this fruit. Everything's going to be okay. You're going to have all this knowledge. You're not going to die. We're just all going to live peace and harmony, and everything's going to be great. It was always about steal, kill, destroy. All right. So these are things, like I said, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but these are things that we see, the concepts anyway, introduced to us in the very beginning when this Nachash, this shining one, who's very clever, very crafty, cunning, subtle, more so than any beast of the field. And when he comes and has this conversation with the woman, again, it's not about the things that are blatantly and obviously evil. It's about what did God really mean when he said that? Um, I don't want to get political. I save that for Tuesdays for about one hour from one to two o'clock. <laughs> but, you know, there is this candidate who's running for president. And um, I can't pronounce his name, um, but he's married to a guy, okay? And every time I'm reading an article about this guy, he's quoting Scripture. And in some cases, it's almost as as if he's trying to shame people who wouldn't support him and that they've got Messiah, you know, uh, what Messiah is all about, all confused and everything with their hatred and their bigotry and all this kind of stuff. And so this guy's, it, you know, in some of these articles I'm reading, he's quoting scripture and almost getting a preachy attitude about some of these things. And what amazes me is how it silences so many people and they're just, they're stopped dead in their tracks because we don't know what to say now. This guy's quoting Bible. That amazes me. But at the same time, it's in, in line with the tactics of the adversary. He's always going to quote something or say something that sounds kind of right, always mingled with a lie. All right. Since in times past we have talked, I think, pretty uh, extensively about, well, where that other tree come from. You know, uh, just for the record, I am of the very strong opinion that the Creator did not plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I am convinced the adversary planted that tree. That is not to say that the adversary can create, but he can take what the Creator has made and created, and he can twist it and contort it and make it something else. In Matthew, the Messiah talks about every plant that my father has not planted will be plucked up. Well, if the father didn't plant it, then who did? All right. So I am very much of the opinion that the adversary is responsible for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a mixed mingled tree. It renders a fruit that if you eat it, you die. Death is not in, in line with the character and attribute of our creator who is about life. And he told the man, and by extension the woman, in the day you eat it, you will die. And I believe not because I will kill you if you eat it, but it will kill you if you eat of it. So this is uh, what we see happening in the very beginning. And one other thing I'd like to add to that before we kind of move on here. If, If I'm correct in thinking that Eden, the Garden of Eden, and then the midst of the garden where the tree of life was, 
and by the way, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Eden, the Garden of Eden, and the midst of the garden, in fact, do constitute the first earthly sanctuary, Eden corresponding to the court, the garden to the holy place, the midst of the garden to the most holy place, then notice, if that's true, then notice that the adversary was not just in Eden. He was not just in the holy place. Where was he? He would have been in the most holy place where the tree of life was. What is in the persona of the man of sin, the son of perdition, going to do, according to Second Thessalonians, at the end of days? He's going to defile the holy place, right? He's going to go in exalting himself above anything that is regarded as being God. He's going to consider himself as God, and he's going to go in and corrupt the holy place. He's going to go in and make himself to be God, as it were. So there again, we see that the adversary from the beginning, he's not going to be content just to mess with some people out here in the courtyard. He's not going to be content just to be on the periphery of what the Creator is doing. What is his intention? What's his objective? To get in the midst of it, to destroy it from within. What did Sanballat tell his compatriots when Nehemiah and the Jews were rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple? He went to Nehemiah and said, hey, let's help you. Let us help you. We're your friends. We're your neighbors. It's been a long time since we've seen you. We'd be happy to help you rebuild all this. But then off to the side with his countrymen, he said, we're going to get into the midst of them, and we're going to destroy them. So we see all of these tactics introduced to us in the very beginning. So in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the breezy part of the day or in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, I read that and I can't help but think that he knew exactly where he was. But he's saying, where are you? So he's giving him an opportunity to engage him in a conversation. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Again, he knows. But who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me... She gave me of the tree, and I ate. Now, that was true. <laughs> it was true. But at the same time, it seems to me that he's trying to pass the buck. And notice that the serpent's the one who crept into the garden. The woman is the one who was seduced by the serpent and first took the fruit and ate it. And then she handed it to the man who was with her. But the creator didn't go to the serpent first. And he didn't go to the woman. Who did he go to? The guy who was responsible to make sure none of this had ever happened. Because going back to Genesis chapter 2, the, the two primary tasks that were given to Adam in the garden was to tend it, that is to work it, and to keep it, that is to guard it, that is to protect it. And I'm adamant about this. 
that the conversation that happened between the serpent and the woman would have never happened if Adam had been diligent to do everything that the Creator had instructed him to do. If he had been, if he had been just as committed to working the garden and guarding the garden, then perhaps that conversation never takes place. And so men, this is, and, and I'm, I'm starting with me, this is one thing that we have to continually recommit ourselves to. We know how to work. We know how to go out and make a living, generally speaking. We know how to do all of those things. And I think that as men, it's sometimes very, very easy for us to get so focused on putting a roof over our family's head, making sure they have food and clothing and all of the things that they need, that sometimes we can lose sight of exactly why we're doing this. And we can, in some ways, let our guard down when we get so focused on the work. Now, thankfully, that's exactly why the Creator said it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make him a helpmate. Because the helpmate, the help opposite, is very keen on those things that would come in and uh, mess with the nest, that would um, threaten the sanctity and the peace of the home. Am, Am I right, ladies? Aren't you a little more sensitive to that than we are? Okay. And yet, who is given the responsibility of making sure to work and to guard? So if our wives, if woman by nature, generally speaking, is more keen, more cognizant of those things that would come in and interfere and creep in, and she's there to help us, we need to listen to that, we need to pay attention to that, and then we need to act on that. Because again, the Creator didn't go to the woman, not first. He went to the man, because he was the one responsible for all of this. You were the one that I put in charge, and I told you what to do. So, so how did this happen? Did you eat of that tree I told you not to eat? Well, the woman that you gave me... She gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, true. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And so I'm going to pause there for just a moment and make this this comment. As far as I can tell in the biblical record, the Nachash, the serpent, the shiny one, is the first thing, entity, whatever you want to call it, to be cursed by the Creator. Because up until this time, He was creating, He was causing things to come and be multiplied, and He would He would bless them, and He would say, this is good. And now we come to a place He says, you are going to be cursed more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And verse 15, I will put enmity, and that word enmity means a state of war, a state of hostility, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, I want to just 
share a little bit about this for a bit. These, uh, of course, verse 14 and 15 is um, very likely the first prophecy of the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the Redeemer that we see. But what I want to look at here as well is, well, let me, I don't have my phone with me that has my Hebrew Bible on it. Uh, yeah, go look in my office and see, because I want to make sure I say, say this exactly right. But while she's doing that, I'm just curious, does anyone have a translation with them that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. They shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise their heel. Does anyone have that translation? Okay. Well, the terminology in Hebrew, it could be he will bruise your head or they can bruise your head. You will bruise his heel, they will bruise, or you will bruise their heel. And I'm bringing this out because it's, thank you. I'm bringing this out because some, some other things that we've talked about before. And that is, whatever the Messiah is, that's what we're supposed to be. He's the head of the body, and so if he's the head of the body, then what's in the body is, it's, it's affected by what the head is. Everything that's in the head permeates throughout the body. If he's the Son of God, then we should understand, to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become what? The sons of God. We are being conformed to the image of the Son of God. If he is the seed of the woman, then we shouldn't be surprised to see that in Revelation 12, there is this remnant of her seed, that is the seed of the woman. They keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of the Messiah. If he is the seed of Abraham, then we shouldn't be surprised that Paul says, if we are Messiahs, we are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. If he's a living stone, then we shouldn't be surprised that we are a living stone. And on and on and on. Whatever he is, that's what we're supposed to be. He's the light of the world, but what does he tell us in Matthew 5? You are what? The light of the world. Because whatever he is, if we are in him, that's what we're supposed to be. So... If there is this enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent, and enmity between her seed and the serpent's seed, then it's not just saying that there's this state of war between the Messiah and the adversary. It's saying that there's this state of war between us, the body of Messiah, and the adversary, and all that pertain to him which then also would infer, at the very least, I was going to look this up real quick. If the serpent was going to bruise the head of the seed of the woman, but be bruised by the heel of the seed of the woman, his head would be bruised by the, uh, the heel of the seed of the woman, then it would make sense that Yeshua would say something like this. I'm giving you the authority to trample on scorpions and serpents. Right? What is he saying? I'm going to overcome the adversary. And so because I've overcome the adversary, you can overcome the adversary. 
I'm going to take my heel and I'm going to trample on his head. And if you're in me and you're following in my footsteps, if you're following me, then you're going to be given the, the, the authority to trample on the head of the adversary. In fact, this is, um, this is from my Hebrew Bible, uh, reading Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. They shall bruise your head and you shall bruise their heel. And that's taken directly from my Hebrew Bible. So what am I saying? You and I, as those who are in Messiah, we need to understand that we're in this war. There's a state of war and hostility that exists between us because we are his and the serpent and the sons of the wicked one. We didn't put it there. He put it there. That means that we're not supposed to coexist. We're not supposed to coexist and tolerate and include all of these things that the world wants us to include, which sounds nice, sounds warm and fuzzy and all those kinds of things. And for you and I to take the stand, we'll know that we can't mix with that and we can't mingle with that. Well, how is that painted in the world? How is that, you know, um, interpreted in the world? That we're bigots, that we're hateful, that we're intolerant, we're this, we're that, we're the other. We need to understand we're at a, there's this state of war that exists between us and that way of thinking. We can't mingle the seed of our bridegroom with these other ideologies, philosophies, and lovers. We can't partake in that. And we need to understand, because Messiah said, well, they hate me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. And so the things that happen to him, the adversary in the world, is going to try to do the same things to those who are of his people. But when we understand that as long as we're walking in the, the footsteps of the Messiah, we have the authority to trample on scorpions and serpents. We have the authority to trample on the head of the adversary. I've overcome the world, and so you're going to be able to overcome the world as well. So I just thought it was important for you to see that it's not just the Messiah who tramples on the head of the serpent or the adversary that it's you and I in him who trample on the head of the adversary as well. By the way, how many years ago was it that Messiah rose from the dead? About 2,000, right? Is the adversary in the bottomless pit right now? Nope, he's not. He's still out there, right? As a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Even though the Messiah, according to 1 John 3, destroyed the works of the devil. And yet he's still out there at work, right? Why? Because you see, through us and in us, what is he doing? He is still trampling on, or through us, there's the potential to trample on the adversary. Um, I kind of abandoned my notes altogether here. I'm just kind of going with the flow. But there was something I wanted to say about that. Maybe it'll come back to me in just a moment. Let's continue. Verse 16. And I'll pause here in just a little bit, and we'll just talk and have a discussion so we won't be too late getting out of here tonight. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Here's something that's always struck me as interesting. 
If we assume that the woman, Chava, has never conceived and given birth at this point, why does he say, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception? Just something to consider. Is it possible, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but is it possible that when they first received the command to be fruitful and multiply, that they did? Okay? And at this point, because of what has happened, now he's saying, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. I mean, what is 100 times zero? Yeah, that wasn't a trick question. <laughs> All that cake has made us like, oh, that's not, nobody told me there was going to be math. Um, all right. So 100 times zero is zero, all right? What's 1,000 times zero? A million times zero, all right? So in other words, it doesn't matter how big a number, if it's never happened, you can't multiply it. But maybe it has. And now he's saying, in childbirth, I'm going to multiply your sorrow, and in pain you shall bring forth children. I hope Melody's not listening right now. (laughs) And then he goes on and he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There are some commentaries that suggest that this, this phrase here, your desire shall be for your husband, infers that he was telling the woman that there are going to, there's, there's going to be the struggle within you to stay in your lane and not want to take over his job. And I don't find that hard to believe considering what's going on in the world today. I mean, there are women in this country today that have pretty much convinced themselves they could run the country better and with some guys that we, never mind, shut up, Bill. <laughs> But there are, there are women, there's a movement in this world today that actually would just, would be, they think they'd be better off if there were no men. They don't want, they don't have any use for any men. And there's this, you know, this extreme feminist movement in the world today, and it makes me wonder if we're not seeing the, the fruition of a prophecy that says your desire shall be for your husband, meaning that you're going to want his position, you're, want, you're going to want his job. Now, why would that reflect badly on the man? Because the man, if he didn't guard, kind of abdicated his responsibility to do that, and that's why all this stuff happened. And would it be fair to say that through through the millennia, even to this very day, that generally speaking, men are more than willing to defer to the woman in certain matters that really should not be left to her exclusively. And I'm thinking particularly when it comes to spiritual matters. I know that's not everybody, but I'm just in general. Um, My mother took us to church. My mother made sure that we were raised and trained in, in a certain way, spiritually speaking. Uh, my father was there. He was a disciplinarian. He, was, he worked very hard. He put a roof over our head. He put food on the table. But when it comes to spiritual matters, he had checked out. And I guarantee you that we weren't the only family that that was the situation. In fact, 
I guarantee you that in our little church growing up, that was pretty much the norm. Now, I see some of you nodding your heads, okay? I hope you understand what I'm trying to say, that generally speaking, many men have just delegated or abdicated, whatever the proper term is, certain responsibilities to the wife that were never intended to be hers, at least not exclusively. All right? So then, when women find themselves in a situation where the men won't lead, what do they, what are they forced to do? Get in there and go with it, right? And then after a while, they get accustomed to that, right? And then if you just extrapolate that on out through the decades, you might end up with a, 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 a group of women who think, well, have the very low esteem for men, kind of like what's going on in the world today. And so I guess what I'm trying to say here is this, is that it comes back to the man. He went to the man first. What did you do? The woman wasn't, you know, exempt from any kind of consequence. It's just that it all boils down to if the man had done what I told him to do, this may not be happening. Ladies, you're going to have to escort me to my car later on. So, no. <laughs> All right. But he is going to rule over you. That's the way it's supposed to be. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Here's what that says to me. It's not that we're not supposed to heed the voice of our wife, but in this particular case, you heeded the voice of your wife and you paid more deference to that and what she said than what I told you. You know, later on, Sarah tells Abraham, this, this son, Ishmael, is not going to, he's not going to be around my son. He's not going to invade the inheritance and get the inheritance of my son. And, and this woman, you need to put him away. And Abraham was distraught over this. But what did the creator say? You need to listen to your wife. So in that particular case, he said, you need to listen to what she says. But in this particular case, you listen to your wife and you ignored what I told you. So cursed is the ground. Adam doesn't get cursed. By the way, the woman doesn't either. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And there is something there in the Hebrew I wanted to show you real quick, if I can find it. And it's about thorns and thistles. So I'm going to go to the pad here. Well, I'm trying. All right. Kotsvedadar. Here is the word for thorns. So that's the kuf, the vav, the holom, actually, and the zadisofit. So it's pronounced kots. 
And this is a word that means to repel. It's, it's something that causes loathing, but it's translated as thorns. And yet, it's something that if you stuck your hand on a thorn and you were kind of uh, lethargic, that prick would kind of cause you to wake up. So here's, here's what we're getting at here. Thorns are those prickly plants, and they will... Um, they're things that you're going to grapple with, and in this particular case, if you're not careful, they're going to hurt you when you embrace them or when you engage them. And these are the things that Adam is going to have to contend with. Why? Because he ate of the tree that I told you not to, to eat. Before he could freely eat of the trees of the garden, all except the one, he didn't have to toil, he didn't have to work, he could freely eat. But now, in order to eat, you're going to have to deal with thorns, and you're going to have to deal with thistles. But in the word kotz, or thorns, I want you to see this here. It's this letter here, and this letter here. Well, let me just do it this way. Let me just erase this. And if I just do that, the word kotz becomes Kets. And kets is the word in Hebrew that means the end. The end. So what do you think that you and I are going to have to be dealing with here at the end of days? We're going to have to be dealing with those things that Adam first was exposed to because of his error. But in the end, those things that we're having to contend with, even though that they're prickly, even though they're painful at times, at the same time, they can provoke us to wake up, to become alert, to realize that we are living at the end. The word that is translated thistle, dadar, uh, according to my notes here, it's the thistles are those things that oftentimes produce attractive flowers. Yet, these thistles... These prickly, weedy plants are the things that steal nutrients, they kill plants, and they destroy the fruit. The thistles that is mentioned here would be likened to the tares in the midst of the wheat. And so he's going to have to deal with thorns, and he's going to have to deal with things that are prickly and painful, and you're trying to work around them, and you're also going to have to deal with things that grow up in the midst of your garden that you just are always fighting with. They look attractive, they look nice, but they're stealing the nutrients away from your plants and you're going to have to always contend with those things. Always contend with those things that are intrusive and always contend with those things that are aggressive. By sweat, you will eat. You're going to have to work at it now. So then, look at this and then I'll, I'll pause and we'll, we'll kind of open up for discussion. Beforehand, man could freely eat. He could just walk up to a tree and he could take and eat. But because he ate of what God told him not to eat, now he's going to have to contend with all these things. He's going to have to work through all of those things. He's going to continually face things that are not good for food in order to have food. Where before, he had things that were easily accessible as food, but what did he choose? the things that were not good for food. So it's like the creator was saying, because that's the choice you made. You wanted to eat those things that were not considered food. 
Now, as your punishment, in order to eat, you're going to have to daily contend with things that are not food in order to sustain yourself, which then leads me to this thought, and I will pause. I know, I always do that. When Israel goes into the land, what did they begin to do not long after they'd been there? They began to turn to other gods, other philosophies, other ideologies, which would be equivalent to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they begin to get that mindset, that way of thinking that we need to be like everybody else. They, everybody else has a king. We need a king. Everybody else does this. We need to do that. They begin to turn these other, to these other philosophies. And eventually, the creator says, and this is a paraphrase, all right, if you want to be like them, then you are going to be among them. You are going to be part of them. You're, you're going to be, that's what you're going to have to deal with. And I'm going to scatter you up through all these nations because you want to be like them. Well, you're going to go live with them. And you're going to be subject to their laws and you're going to be seeing that my, my way of doing things that you thought was so hard really isn't all that difficult. In fact, I'm going to turn you over to laws that you're going to find you cannot live by. That's Ezekiel 20. And so if that's what you want, that's what you're going to have. And that's essentially what happened in the beginning, that Adam was forced to deal with things that were not good for food because that's what he chose, to eat something that was not good for food. And now you and I here at the end, we're realizing, you know, we're seeing this thing from the perspective of the eons of time, but we're still dealing with those things But as Babylon now is producing its fruit, as those thorns and thistles are really putting out the fruit and we really see what it is, perhaps it's making it a little bit more, our choice a little more deliberate. (laughs) And that we see where all this has come to and what it's become. And in some ways, it's making our choices, I think, easier. Because no longer is it hidden and concealed and lurking in the shadows. It's out there in the open for everybody to see what's going on. Does that make sense to you? The fruit has now appeared. And if the fruit has appeared, based on what we see in the parable of the wheat and the tear, if the fruit has appeared, then we know that the harvest is near. All right? All right, I... That prompted another thought, but I told you I was going to pause, and so I will pause. But um, if, um, Patrick, do you mind grabbing this microphone in case somebody has a question or something they want to? Okay, Jonathan, thank you. Got the other one on. Does anybody have a question or a comment about any of this? And if you don't, we'll have to see what's online. All right, Elizabeth. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, go back to uh, the shiny object, uh, the, the snake in the garden. Okay. Um, I, I, have, I have read that the snake was kind of like the cobra, that it, it had extraordinary ability to speak. And to kind of stand up, which Eve doesn't seem real confused 
that here is a snake talking to her. Kind of like Balaam with the donkey. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my one thought about that, but that the snake, in other words, gave permission for, for, the, for Satan to inhabit him or her. Um, and that's why I believe the snake was cursed, only to grow on the ground forevermore, because I think it did maybe have some kind of superior power, not human, but because, after all, it was talking to her, and she was not astonished. Well, just a thought. Well, I mean, I've thought about along those lines, you know, when it says serpent, should I take that literally to mean like a serpent, like what you and I imagine, short of, uh, or uh, with the exception being that apparently this serpent could stand up on legs if it was then made to go on its belly. Um, I don't discount that. I don't throw that out, you know. Um, In fact, um, there are, I've I've read this in Biblical Archaeology Review probably 20 years ago, but in and around Jerusalem, they found fossils of serpent-like creatures that had appendages, that had legs, um, so perhaps, you know, that, that there was something there that was used by the adversary in that way. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we read in Revelation chapter 12, I think it was, that the serpent of old is the devil, Satan. That's what John says. So was it that he just used this beast or was it that he was the beast? I kind of land on the, the side that it was him. You know, and that he was the one that had infiltrated the garden in that way. Um, And that's what leads me to wonder if, by the use of the word serpent, if it was not something a little different than what we've heretofore imagined, you know. And and we weren't there, so we can't be 100% sure either way. Other than the scripture says, in the Hebrew says, Nahash. And Nahash, yes, it is translated serpent, but it's also translated shining. It's that shining one. So perhaps that's why she wasn't really taken aback by she's having a conversation. Um, let's, let's go down that trail for just a minute. Let's presume, and maybe that's a dangerous thing to do, but let's presume that when the Creator comes walking in the cool of the day, that's not the first time that's happened. Okay? Maybe that's, you know, not something that they were all that surprised about either, other than in this particular case, the state that he would find them in. So maybe they have already been um, acclimated to, the, <laughs> to the, the, the situation where there would be, you know, these shining, you know, personages or whatever. That's that's not the right word, but you understand what I'm trying to say here, that they've already, you know, been acclimated to, well, if the creator's walking in the cool of the day, then, you know, maybe they've been exposed to other things. So maybe that has something to do with it. Um, Again, we weren't there. We can't be 100% certain. I, I do believe, however, that beyond the form of it, it's the function that we need to really focus in on, you know, how the adversary seduces his tactic, what's the objective, you know, all of the, 
uh, patterns that are established. He's the most subtle of all the beasts of the field, etc. So, there was one other thing. While I have the mic, I sure just go right ahead. Do this. Um, you said, and, and I meditated on this and just mused over this a lot. Um, Adam would okay. What would what should have happened when? Adam saw or knew that she had disobeyed and, and so brought this horrible fall on, on mankind. So when I meditated on this years ago, I got this from the Lord, was that Adam should have offered to sacrifice himself for her. Um, I have entertained this thought. Did he love her so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself, so to speak, in that regard? You know, knowing that what he was doing was forbidden. Was he so attached to her? Did he love her so much that he was willing to give that up for her on her behalf? I've entertained that thought. And the reason I've entertained that thought is not that that we should ever... <laughs> disobey the creator in deference to someone else but at the same time what did the last Adam do you know he he sacrificed himself why for a bride who had polluted herself right you know so I'm not I don't want anybody to read into that that you know God intended Adam the first Adam to do what he did because he wouldn't have told him don't eat that if he didn't mean don't eat that and at the same time, if, you know, we don't, we, can't, we don't know for sure, but if the first Adam did, quote-unquote, sacrifice himself in the, in the, in the way that, um, you know, he, he knew what he, he had to know what he was giving up, you know, he had to know that this was going to have a consequence, but the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. You know, you're the one that brought her to me. You, we made, you made us one flesh. She ate it, so I ate it. Um, I, I guess we will have to just speculate about what was going on in his mind. But if it was because he wanted to be with her, then it does, in, a, it, in some way, anyhow, it does project forward to the fact that the last Adam was willing to lay everything aside and sacrifice himself for a bride that had you know, polluted herself, so. You know, she was pretty special. Oh, you don't have the mic anymore, do you? That's right. I, I can project. She was pretty special. But when he first saw her, he said, wow, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he liked her. <laughs> Who's next? Do you think that it's possible that the... Um, the serpent in Genesis 3 was originally the dragon in Revelation 12 because God said, now that you have done this, you will change form, so to speak, and crawl on your belly. In function, I think they're one and the same. You know, as far as the form of it, you know, like you just said, I really don't, I don't know. Um, It seems to me that it's he, he's still, even though he's a beast, 
He's that serpent of old, but he's, he's still the dragon in the end. He's, he's still that, that dragon or that beast that comes up out of the sea. And at the end of days, he's still, you know, um, he's at war with, with the lamb and with, you know, with his people. So I, I don't know that I would agree that he changed forms at the beginning and he's been the serpent since and was the dragon before because it seems he's the dragon at the end as well. But as far as the function and, you know, what, what he's doing, then, yeah, I think they're one and the same. The, the other question, you brought this up, too, um, about other children that, uh, Eve, now you will multiply in your, your pain and childbearing. Um, I've seen commentaries where the sages have done studies that there's maybe up to 30-some children that Adam and Eve had, it doesn't necessarily uh, speak of them in the Bible, um, but Cain and Abel had to find a wife somewhere. Well, Abel didn't. Well, um, I'm just saying, <laughs> take it back. <laughs> there were other people. Right, right. I know what you're saying. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I believe that, Bob. I mean, look, I don't want to open up a can of worms here right at the end of the night. But when it said he created Adam, male and female, I believe it's possible that, yeah, he created that Adam and the Eve that we, that we read of, but I also believe it's possible that he created mankind, male and female. I think that's a possibility. Um, it's, it, it's also a possibility that, like I said earlier, when he said, I'll, multi I'll multiply your... Uh, your suffering and your conception, it's very possible that she had already been fruitful and already been multiplying, that there were already sons and daughters out there. Maybe, who knows, you know? Um, and, and for that matter, we have no idea how much time passed. I know rabbinical commentary tries to put a time frame on it, but really, we have no idea how long they were there before the fall occurred. I, I personally don't believe that he created man on the sixth day, and by the end of the sixth day, he had already messed up. I just, I don't buy that. You know, I just really, really don't buy that. I know we're hard-headed. I know we're difficult to get along with, but I think I, I could at least for a day, you know, enjoy the bounty of freely eating from all the trees of the garden and this beautiful woman that you've brought to me. I think I could, <laughs> I could hold out for a day, all right? So we don't, have, we don't know how long they were there. So I think it's in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, leaves the door open to the very real probability that there were many more people on the earth other than Adam and Eve at the time of the fall. You know, how they got there, did he create mankind when he created Adam and the woman, or did they all come from that Adam and that woman? I don't know, but I think it's entirely probable that there were many more people at the time of the fall, and certainly by the time Cain gets exiled, and he goes, you know, to the east of the land of Nod, because he has to, like you said, he has to find a wife. Where'd she come from? Well, it had to have happened somehow like that. You know, it's just these things that we would love to know. It's like the creator's way of, you know, no, you're on a need-to-know basis, Bob. I will let you know what you need to know. But in the meantime, have fun, you know. <laughs> have fun speculating about these things. Everything in the Bible is true, but not everything that happened is in the Bible. Amen. It's like the Messiah. John tells us that 
if everything that the Messiah had done had been recorded, the books couldn't hold it. And that's just during his ministry, you know? Yeah, Dana. Um, I guess I go back to the Revelation scripture that you shared. And when I see the woman, to be honest, I, I personally see that as the church, sadly. As the compromising. Um, exactly. The compromising exactly. believers. Yeah. But I guess what is disheartening and at the same time very convicting is that there is like there's just not anything that we can put our faith in except his word. Because even in a place I mean I'm just sharing very honestly here. Like our family has gone through, and I feel like we're kind of paying a price for it. We have uprooted our family so many times because we have been in places where there was a lot of compromise, and then the Lord would release us from that, and we would go, you know, hoping to go to another place where where we thought people would not compromise. And I guess here's here's what I bring it all back to. I mean, there's no perfect scenario, right? It is his word. But I guess there's just this such an urgency in my heart because um, I just feel like we're in the time where if this generation especially doesn't start to really cling to the word, I mean, it's almost obsolete. It's almost like people, do you understand what I'm saying? And then I think about Matthew 24, 24, where he says that even the elect may be led astray. So sometimes I feel like this world is so full of deception. I mean, that even when there's people that you feel like you really can trust, um, you start to wonder, and I mean, we can't. The reality is we can't trust anybody but Yeshua, right? That's right. And then there's... I don't even trust myself. You know, okay, I can't yeah. afford to trust myself. Exactly. Because, you know, that goes back to, you know, what we talked about the Esau within. Exactly. You know, that old nature, if we don't keep it under control, if we don't mm-hmm. keep our flesh crucified, it will lie to us. It will deceive us. It will lure us away. It will tell us, oh, it's okay. And, you know, this is all right. So, you know, we, we can't even afford to f- completely trust ourselves. So we have to keep our eyes on what he said exactly. and, you know, his example. So, yes. And if I could just share this as encouragement, um, I was in this fast recently and I had been praying for my family for like three days and I sat down on the bed and my Bible just was open. And I I know I didn't open it to the scripture, but it says uh, it's Isaiah 49, 24, actually 25. He says, but thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. And I guess that's the hope, is knowing that, you know, yeah, the captives can be taken away, and, you know, there can be innocent lives, people led astray, but that ultimately he promises that he will contend with that which contends with us as long as we are in him, in his word. So... Well, I, I believe that what you said at the beginning, I believe that the woman, and this was what I, 
I guess I just stopped short of saying that, that the woman, I believe, represents those that they call him their husband, but they've gone out and consorted with all these other philosophies and ideologies, and they've relaxed the standards and compromised. I, I believe that's exactly what that's representative of. But it's not the beast. It works in cooperation with the beast. And because of deception, because in the, the woman in the beginning, what, why did she do what she did? It wasn't because she wanted to destroy her husband. It was because she was deceived, right? And she allowed this, these words and the seduction of the adversary to justify what she, you know, apparently privately longed for. So I, I do believe that, how do I want to say this here? Unfortunately, there is a body on, in the earth today, and the body of Messiah today, by and large, has, in my opinion, bought into the idea that we need to be seeker-friendly, that we need to be relevant to the times, that we need to be palatable for people, that we need to ease some things so we can kind of get them in the door and those kinds of things, say the nice fluffy things. Don't say things that would might offend them because we don't want to offend them. Now, I'm saying I believe that that is what has happened in general. I don't believe that everybody is is participating in that, but I think it's pretty prevalent. And if it weren't, then maybe some of the things that are going on in the world today wouldn't be going on in the world today, you know? So that accentuates the need for you and for me and all of us to, as you said, we need to we need to know what that word says. We need to trust in that word. We need to stay focused on that word. We need to stay focused on Him, because if we keep our eyes on Him, well, let me rephrase it. If we don't keep our eyes on Him, the tree of life, then we're going to be looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by default. All right. Who was over here? And I know you got some people online, but there was another hand before you did that. Okay. To go along, Bill, with what you've just been talking about, uh, as you and I have talked a few times, uh, I'm a Methodist. I haven't been in a Methodist church since last March. Uh, as you probably know with the front page news, as everybody else does here, the vote that they took on the gay marriage and the, the gay pastors and all that. Uh, Elizabeth knows that I was awake for a month. What should I do? Should I stay? Should I fight? I left them. They're wrong. They wrote a letter of apology from my group here in, in, in East Tennessee that they apologized for the, the efforts that they had taken against the gays in the marriage. And, and I can't go back to them. So I've had conflict. Should I still be there as a voice? I, I stood up publicly with the microphone in my mouth, slap, in mouth in front of the, the, the entire congregation last March, and I denounced what was going on publicly. She knows that. And you could hear the pin drop. I've had one person in a church that talks to me, just one. Uh, this is a terrible state of affairs that's going on with one of the largest denominations of Christianity in this country. So that's just a comment I want to make, how right you are with what's going on out there and how it affects people. But I got a question now about, about Genesis. Somebody mentioned about refined earth last week. Uh, uh, God gave man dominion over the beast. He allowed them to name them, but he also allowed him to name woman. So I want her to remember that dominion. 
She knows that. <laughs> You're on your own now, Rod. So. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a 27-minute drive home. <laughs> but but I, 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 the, the point I would like to make going back to Genesis is uh, I think man's downfall began before he ate the apple because he was given dominion and he should have had the husbandry over that Garden of Eden. He could have taken the tree out if he was doing his job. I think if he was doing his job, the tree would have never gotten planted. Let's go to Beth. She, I think she's got some things here online. That was a perfect segue, Ron. Thank you. So online, we're having some uh, quite a bit of discussion, a little bit of friendly debate. And thank you guys online. I don't know which camera's on, but thank you for keeping it friendly on here and not slicing and dicing each other because we are all family. So the... the um, questions are surrounding the origin of both of the trees and one side is uh, considering that could the father have put it there as a test one side says no I don't think he would test us that way like uh, a trick almost Um, so if you could get into the discussion a little bit of where did they come from why are they both there who put the evil there and that also brings up the question um, from one side, does the father create evil? Um, and then, oh, how to even slide this one in there, I don't know. But the discussion then with Eve having taken the bite of the forbidden fruit, does that mean that, um, and you're going to love this, <laughs> that women are just inherently uh, more manipulative and more evil? <laughs> answers all of them but the last one <laughs> well first, Ron said he'll drive you home <laughs> <laughs> okay you people don't mind better be watching wherever you are okay, I might have to come I, stay with some of y'all <laughs> well pers- personally no I do not believe I'll start with the last one uh, no I don't believe that women are just inherently more manipulative I've, I'm, I talk about politics once a week and most of the people I talk about are men who are manipulative and just as wicked and scheming and evil as any, anybody, anyone. I don't think that's male or female. I, if, if females are anything uh, more so than men are, I think it's that women, generally speaking, are more intuitive than men. men women are, tend to be more spiritually keen. Now, that could be also part of the reason that you know, they can open themselves up to be deceived and seduced, you know, because there has to be that partnership. You know, the man has to do his job and the woman has to do their job. And if one of them is not doing their job, the other one has to overcompensate. And that can lead to problems, you know, that can lead to a breakdown. And so where the first, you know, man and woman are concerned, I will go to my dying day saying that if Adam had guarded just as he was instructed to work, then it's very, very possible, I would even say probable, that the conversation between the woman and the serpent never occurs because he would have guarded against that. I would even go so far as to say the reason the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there is because he didn't guard. So as to how it got there. I've said this many times. I do not believe that our father sets before us a plate of steamed broccoli 
and next to that, a bowl of ice cream laced with poison, and then says, eat your broccoli, but don't eat that ice cream or or you'll die, and then walk off to leave us as little children to decide, do I want the steamed broccoli or do I want the ice cream that's laced with poison? I just don't believe he does that because I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that to your children, would you? No, you wouldn't do that. So does he allow us to be, does he allow us to be in situations where we are confronted and, uh, and, and proven and, and are we going to do what he said to do? Are we going to keep his commandments? Yeah. He's, you know, he, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, I led you through the wilderness all these years to see what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep my commandments or not. But keeping his commandments always lends itself to life. He's not going to seduce us with death. And that's, that's where I stand on it. As to how the tree got there, the parable of the wheat and the tear, at the very least, hints at this. The tree, excuse me, the field of wheat was the world, and it was sown with good seed. Well, you have to go back to the parable of the sower to understand the significance of that statement or that phrase, good seed, because in the parable of the sower, a seed is being sown. It's, fall, it's falling on uh, the wayside, it's snatched up by birds, some falls among the thorns and thistles, it gets choked out by the cares of life, some falls on the stony ground because it has no depth of earth, it goes up, it raises up real fast, but then it melts away because of the sun. But then there's that seed that falls on good ground, it produces fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And then he says the seed is the word. So the good seed is the word of God. So what is sown in the parable of the wheat and the tares? It is the good seed, which is the word of God. What is it going to produce? Wheat, which are the sons of the kingdom. So how is it that the world got a different seed planted? An enemy has done this. When did he do it? When it was dark and while men were sleeping. So that to me is hinting at the fact that in the beginning, what was Adam doing? He was sleeping when he should have been guarding. Why do you have a field where men are sleeping? Why, why aren't they at home? Why are they in the field in the first place? It seems to me that they are there to guard the field against the very thing that happened. But they went to sleep. When does the adversary come into the garden on the eve of the Messiah's crucifixion? When they're sleeping. Sleep on. The the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And so there's all of these, you know, pictures that we see that the reason the adversary is successful in what he does is not because he's that powerful. It's because we're that weak. And we fall asleep. So the other seed, the tear, the wheat, the chasaf, which again, if you remember, that is thematically related to Esau or Esau. And so the wheat is sown in the field because, not because the owner of the field wanted it there. He didn't want anything but the good seed to be sown there. From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, This is Solace Radio.